Hello and welcome to episode three of the BV Magazine's podcast for March 2023, your slice of genuine Dorset rural life. I'm Jenny Devitt. And welcome from me, Terry Bennett. Dorset Minds' Marie Glenn talks about the very real effects of food poverty on our young people. Actress Joanna Woodward takes on the random 19 questions. Councillor Laura Beddow explains what happens to the contents of our bins and offers some advice on what can and can't be recycled. NFU Dorset County Advisor Gemma Harvey talks about the NFU's first female president, Minette Batters. Health. Food poverty and youth mental health. With a growing need for food banks, what effect does food poverty have on a family's youngest members? Asks Dorset Minds' Marie Glenn. For the past six months, I've volunteered at a local community fridge. I've seen an increasing number of families with children asking for support. Working a session on Christmas Eve in particular struck me how normalised this way of life had become for many families. Between the 1st of April and the 31st of March 2022, the Trussell Trusts UK network distributed 2.1 million food parcels to people in crisis, a 14% increase on the previous year, and 832,000 of these went to children. I began to consider the impact this situation may be having on the well-being of those children. Living in a safe, warm and secure home with enough food to eat is fundamental to providing a physically and mentally healthy childhood. Sadly, for many, this simple basis has become increasingly challenging. BBC Children in Need recently reported that 30% of children in the UK worry about their families having enough money to live. I spoke to a 14-year-old who comes weekly to the community fridge. She told me, My mum fell on hard times about two years ago, and we've been relying on the food bank ever since. At first, I was ashamed and found it difficult. People at school bullied me for being poor. I was also anxious about mum. But now it's just normal, and I'm grateful for the help we receive. Wondering about the long-term effects, I spoke to an adult who had experienced poverty as a child. I remember feeling worried. I knew that something was wrong because my parents were stressed and arguing a lot. I wanted to help, but didn't know how to. That feeling of helplessness never really leaves you. The UK is facing a worrying escalation in children living in poverty. The associated mental health issues affect their education, social development, self-esteem and their ability to thrive. It may well continue to affect them into adulthood. It's vital we maintain connections with struggling young people and continue to promote good self-care and resilience. Dorset Mind and Dorset's food banks are filled with passionate volunteers who support the delivery of vital services across Dorset. If you'd like to help, I would encourage you to consider volunteering. It's not an entirely selfless act. Being part of local organisations has been excellent for my own well-being and enabled me to connect and support people of different ages and backgrounds. In 2022, Dorset Mind's Children and Young People Service reached a total of 2,661 children and young people in schools, online and in their local communities. We need to think seriously about the long-term impact of the current cost-of-living crisis and the effect it'll have on the mental well-being and resilience of our future generations. Dorset Mind hopes that, through working as a community, we can better support young people. Four sources where you can find local support. Firstly, local food banks in Dorset at helpandkindness.co.uk 
For support with debt and money advice, call the Citizens Advice Bureau on 0800 328 0006 or visit their website. The Samaritans provide a listening service through their phone line, which operates 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You can talk through your concerns and troubles and contact them on 116123. Finally, Dorset Mind Wellbeing and Mental Health Support is at dorsetmind.uk. West End star Joanna Woodward answers the random 19 questions. Based on the best-selling novel by Audrey Niffenegger, the musical adaptation of The Time Traveller's Wife is scheduled for a West End run at the Apollo Theatre on Shaftesbury Avenue this autumn. Joanna Woodward, who grew up in Glastonbury, will play the female lead, Claire. She attended St Dunstan's School and Bridgewater College before going to the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. Her West End career began ten years ago in Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along, and her list of theatre credits include playing Vivian Ward in Pretty Woman, the musical, Piccadilly Theatre and Savoy Theatre, and Carol King in Beautiful, the Carol King musical at the Aldwych Theatre. The Time Traveller's Wife, the musical, has a heartbreaking and soaring original musical score by multi-Grammy award-winning composers Joss Stone and Dave Stewart, and is based on one of the best-loved novels of the past 50 years. Henry and Claire's love story is like no other, and yet like all others. They meet, flirt, fight, love, marry, but all out of order. Henry is often and uncontrollably flung into time travels. He suffers from a rare condition where his genetic clock periodically resets, pulling him into his past or future, vanishing before one's eyes, never knowing where or when he's going next. Except he knows he'll always come back to Claire, at some point in time. And so to the questions... Number one, what's your relationship with Dorset? Well, I grew up in Glastonbury, what, 15 miles from the Dorset border? I loved it. The mix of people, the spirituality running through the place, the music and creativity. I was always going out to live gigs as a teenager, in between performing in the local amateur dramatics at Strode Theatre in Street. The last film you watched? That was Pieces of a Woman on Netflix. I would strongly recommend it. Vanessa Kirby is outstanding in all that she does. It's a very difficult piece to watch, but it's important. It's Friday night. You have the house to yourself and no work is allowed. What are you going to do? Most parents will agree once you've got the kids in bed, it's usually just dinner and crashing out in front of the television. But I can be found cooking a delicious vegan meal, lighting some candles, having a bath and reading a book. Self-care is really important, especially as a working mum. So if I do manage some time alone, it's all about refilling my cup. What was the last song you sang out loud in your car? Definitely something Disney-related. I have two young girls, and this is often our way of getting through long journeys. Possibly Let It Go, or probably the current family favourite, I've Got a Dream, from Tangled. What would you like to tell the 15-year-old you? Life seems really tough and scary, and it can be, but it also balances out with really beautiful things if you're open and willing to look for them. Never give up faith in yourself. You will get to where you want to be as long as you stay true to your gut and have patience. Tell us about a sound or a smell that makes you happy. I can do both. For a smell, my husband's aftershave. Cheesy, but true, and sound. My 16-month-old 
has just started saying, I love you, in a very cute toddler way. So when the girls say it to each other, I completely melt into a puddle. The best flavour of crisps? All of them. I'm crisp mad and may have a problem. Help! What's your secret superpower? I'm highly sensitive. In the past, I've been made to believe it's a fault, but as I've got older, I've realised that it's not at all. It's what allows me to be intuitive with others and very in touch with my own emotions. So, actually, it's my superpower and allows me to tell truthful stories as an actress. What book did you read recently that stayed with you? The Reason I Jump by Naoki Higashida. Such a beautiful, touching, incredible insight into the brain of an autistic child. What would you like to be remembered for? Being someone who followed my heart and the things I believe in. Being a great storyteller. Being a good mum. What shop can you not pass by? Oliver Bonus. They just have the perfect mix of leopard print and sparkles. It pulls me in like nectar to a bee. Your favourite quote? It's quite long, but Theodore Roosevelt's The Man in the Arena speech is something I live by daily. It's about daring greatly, living a full life, and not listening to the critics who are not the ones actually in the arena. Tell us about one of the best evenings you've ever had. Without a doubt, the night I got thrown on as Carol King in Beautiful, the Carol King musical, in the West End. We were doing previews with almost no rehearsals. It was terrifying and phenomenal, and all my dreams coming true. When I got home, I danced around the kitchen too. What a feeling. Your most annoying trait? Overthinking everything. What was the last gift you either gave or received? I stayed at my best mate's house recently and she left me a little makeup bag on the bed because she's cute like that. She also left me a hot water bottle in the bed, which after a night of high heels and interviews was the best gift ever. Your top three most visited websites? What's on stage for all the latest theatre news? Find what feels good for my yoga fix and bookshop.org so that I can feed my book addiction while supporting local bookshops. What in life is frankly a mystery to you? How on earth I created my daughters. I often look at them and wonder how that happened. Cats or dogs? I have both, but anybody who knows me knows that I turn gooey around dogs. All dogs. If you approach me with a dog, I won't be saying hello to you first. Sorry. You have the power to pass one law tomorrow, uncontested. What would you do? Childcare support for new parents. It's so hard for women to go back to work after having children. News. Reduce, reuse, recycle. What actually happens to Dorset's rubbish? Behind every rubbish lorry is a sophisticated team of experts, and Rachel Rowe spoke to the Queen of the Bins, Councillor Laura Beddow. You dutifully throw your rubbish into your household bin and put it out on the curb on collection day. But have you ever wondered what happens to it? Where it goes once it's been collected? And what happens to all that diligent recycling after you've sorted glass from paper and other items? There's recently been a campaign to encourage people to recycle more. So are we doing as much as we can or should? How good is Dorset's recycling? Councillor Laura Beddow holds the portfolio for rubbish and recycling at Dorset Council. 
She earned credibility when she took on the role by training and working as a bin loader to see what happens on the front line when lorries deal with curbside collections. In Dorset, 60% of rubbish is recycled, she says. We're the third best council in the country, and we've just agreed to set an increase of targets to 65%. How much rubbish are we talking about? Well, most people think the job ends with recycling in the green bins. But in Dorset, 50,000 tonnes of black-bagged household rubbish is taken to a mechanical biological treatment, MBT, plant in Poole each year. Here, the mechanical part separates out some low-quality recycling and the biological stage composts the waste. So there's a compost-like output, some low-grade recycling and refuse-derived fuel produced. They sort through the black bag rubbish for anything that can be taken out of landfill like soft plastics, film and compostable items. A lot of it goes to refuse-derived fuel and because it's refuse-derived, we can't call it recycling. But materials such as non-recyclable plastic, which would sit in landfill sites for hundreds of years, can instead be used in a helpful way to generate renewable heat and power. It means that in actual fact, 95% of rubbish avoids going to landfill here in Dorset. Does that mean we can just use black bags? No, people still need to recycle. If everyone in Dorset was meticulous about how they recycle and sorted their own waste properly, we could save a million pounds each year. So please do your best. Is it necessary to ensure containers like food packets, cans, bottles and jars are clean when they go into the recycling box? Give them a quick rinse. They don't need to be thoroughly cleaned, but ideally there should be no food in your recycling bin. Is that true for any organic matter? What about compostable nappies? That's a difficult one because some nappy brands do say their products are compostable. They are usually not, and those which technically are will still take decades to break down. So for all sorts of reasons, we can't recycle nappies. As a parent, I know that we all start with the best of intentions. But if you're out and about and your baby has a spectacular nappy-related accident, you may well want to reach for a disposable. But it currently costs the council around £600,000 per year to send all used disposable nappies in Dorset for MBT, along with household rubbish. Using reusable nappies is cheaper and better for the planet. One pack of disposable nappies per week for up to two and a half years can cost over £1,000 per child. Alternatively, using washable nappies can make you a saving of over £600 and they can be reused for subsequent children. What happens to the waste once it's been sorted? How much of it stays in the county? Well, paper and card are sorted using chemical screening and that gets sent to Shotton Paper Mill on D-side for reprocessing into paper goods. As for your food bin... All of that's sent to an anaerobic digester plant in Dorchester, which breaks down matter without oxygen and turns it into biogas. It's used as electricity for businesses and also as fertiliser for farms. Garden waste is composted and used in parks and farms in Dorset. Just 5% of waste from Dorset is sent to landfill, and that goes to North Wales. So what happens to all the other items that are recycled? Glass gets optically sorted for recycling using lasers. With cans, steel is separated from aluminium using a magnet, and again they get recycled. For plastics, we use infrared technology so they can be sorted according to light intensity. They're then turned into pellets to be melted down and recycled. A lot of strategic thinking goes on at Dorset Council on recycling waste. Laura says people think the rubbish collection is just the bin lorries, but behind the scenes is an entire team of environmental and climate experts working out how to reduce waste significantly. They are constantly looking at new things to do. 
Dorset is often presumed to be a sleepy rural county, but we sit at the table with ministers in Westminster, advising them on what will work and what won't. The government wants more crisp packet recycling at the curbside, for example, but there's lots of reasons why that's not practical, such as separating it on the trucks. We want a solution that works for Dorset, perhaps community recycling bins. How can people recycle more? I think it's just about doing your best. It's surprising how much we can recycle. And it's about education too. I bought nothing new in 2022, and I was astonished at how some friends were quite snooty about it. I've learned it's about changing the mindset of people, and it's also about using the waste hierarchy. We all know the reduce, reuse, recycle mantra. We can reduce quite simply by deciding whether we need something in the first place. Then reuse instead of throwing it away. I made fairy lights from tin cans from my wedding, and I still have them. And then recycle. As a team, we go to schools, communities, parish councils and housing associations to give talks on how to reduce waste. We're always happy to educate and to advise on any issues. My husband calls me the Queen of the Bins. And for more details on which bin to use for what, go to the Dorset Council website. Last month, the National Farmers Union held its big annual conference, and one of the key speakers was, of course, its president, Minette Batters. In this month's BV magazine, NFU Dorset County advisor Gemma Harvey writes about some of the main points raised in Minette Batters' speech. It seems that she's widely regarded as being an excellent president. Gemma Harvey certainly thinks so. She's been a fantastic president for the NFU, and as you say, the first the first female president, so groundbreaking. Um, yeah, she's really put the NFU into kind of places that we've never quite been before, so really extended the reach of British agriculture and farming. I mean, she's the first NFU president to ever take part in Desert Island Discs, um, and likewise, she's appeared on Question Time several times, so she, she will happily speak her mind, and, um, and in terms of kind of agricultural policy and some of our key asks, she is really flying that fat flag for British farming. She's fabulous. So she goes down very, very well. She's held in very high regard amongst NFU members because, I mean, ultimately it was the NFU membership base that voted for her to become president of the the NFU. Um, So, yeah, she's held in very high regard by farmers across the country. And and does does it make a difference, the fact that she is a tenant farmer? I think yes. Um, I mean, obviously, we, we represent farmers that are tenants and also um, owners as well, owner occupiers. Um, but she definitely kind of resonates well with the tenant sector, the fact that she, she is one herself. So she really understands the issues. And obviously, tenant farmers do experience some increased difficulties compared to owner occupiers. So it resonates very, very well with, with tenants as well. So they feel she can really represent them. Absolutely, and she's worked quite closely with um, Baroness Rock over the last kind of year or so as Baroness Rock has put together her the Rock Review, so a review of um, how the, the up-and-coming um, ELMS, so Environment, Land and Management Schemes, w- will impact or affect tenant farmers and how, how the tenant voice needs to be woven through that um, increasingly to make sure that they have access to the opportunities afforded within the ELMS schemes as they come to fruition. Now, last month at your your big um, NFU annual conference, she said that the clock was ticking for British farmers and that rising costs, labour shortages, bird flu and post-Brexit red tape and changes were making life increasingly hard for our farmers. Uh, Would I be right in assuming that you would agree with that? 
Yes, I would definitely agree. I mean, the pressures are ever increasing on farmers. We know that we've got a cost of living crisis. Everyone is, is feeling the crunch, but none more so than, than those on farms. We are kind of at the bottom end of the supply chain. So really, as as kind of um, cost pressures are, are increasing, then that's felt none more so than by those um, those suppliers and which are farmers actually at the bottom of the food chain. So, I mean, we've all seen cost, cost inflation over the last um, year or so. Um, the cost of agricultural inputs actually has gone up by 50% since 2019. So actually that cost inflation on farm is, is significantly higher than in some other sectors and other industries. And actually what we've seen is that cost, um, as it's increased, the price that farmers have been paid for their produce hasn't always kept up, um, and none more so in, than in the poultry sector. I mean, Manette included in kind of her opening speech at conference that, that since 2019 we are now producing one billion fewer eggs than we were back in 2019. So it's having a huge impact. Um, inflation and cost of inputs is having a huge impact on the sector. Um, and it is a real challenging time for farmers. And by cost in increase input, you're referring to things like fertiliser. Yeah, exactly that. So, so fuel feed fertilisers. I mean, fertiliser is produced using gas. And obviously, we know that gas prices have been very, very high um, in, in the last year off the back of the war in Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, we've seen huge, I mean, fertiliser inflation has gone is even higher than that, that 50% agricultural input um, inflation so we've seen fertiliser go up by 150% um, which is a huge increase and has had real impact on farm. But, but one, of, one of the things that has happened as a result of that uh, is that uh, as I understand it a number of farmers have turned more to um, making good use of any uh, manure, any, any slurry uh, as, as you know, to compensate for not being able to get hold of the the same amount of artificial fertilizer. Yes, you're correct, Jenny. So, um, I mean, farmers have always used their, their farmyard manure and their slurries as a very good source of, of feed for their their plant products and their for their plants and their grass. But what it has meant is actually where we've had to uh, or haven't been able to necessarily apply the same level of, of nitrogen fertiliser in, as in previous years with that cost increase. They have been utilising um, their farmyard manures and their slurries um, even more efficiently to make sure they're really making the most out of those products, which obviously are, are coming out of the livestock on, on lots of their farms. But unfortunately, obviously... There is only a, a set amount um, of those kind of farmyard manures and slurries, and, and what we had already was, by and large, being used pretty efficiently already. Um, so it's not to say that those products are replacing nitrogen. There is still absolutely a place um, and a need for those fertilisers, but it has meant that efficiencies have been significantly kind of improved over the last year. I mean, they were improving already as technology improves um, then obviously efficiencies on farm do improve, but it has meant that you know less fertiliser has been able to be applied in some cases where it's been cost prohibitive to actually bring that product onto farm. Now, Gemma, uh, Minette Bat has also uh, told the, the annual conference in February that uh, we have, as she said, an opportunity and a duty to get the best out of our maritime climate and should pay far more attention to the health of the environment and never take our food security for granted. Food security, of course, is not the same as being self-sufficient, something that the UK is rather far from being, is it not? Yes, so we're about 60%, 60 61% self-sufficient in, in food. And you are right that self-sufficiency and food security are two different things. I mean, 
we are kind of relatively happy that that 60-61% has been fairly stable for the, for the last few years. I mean, we absolutely recognise that, that we can't produce everything in this country that, that our consumer would like. Um, and therefore, there will always be a level of food that needs to be imported. And that's where that food security um, conversation comes in, because food security in general terms is, is not just having access to food. It's having access to sufficient nutritious food for your diet and also food that you would like to eat as well so that 60% figure is food that um, comes off British farms directly into kind of our manufacturing and onto our plates within Britain but there's always going to be a level of food that we can't grow in in the UK in which case we do need to import it and that's kind of where that other 40% figure comes from and that's that's the bigger picture in terms of food security. One gets the impression, Gemma, that she and many other farmers feel that successive politicians talk the talk but don't walk the walk, uh, that what they say might be mostly hot air. Is that the case? <laughs> um, I think we've, we've always, I mean, that's always had fairly frank conversations with politicians and um, I wouldn't like to say that it's hot air. We are, they are very actively engaged, but we know that agriculture is one part of a, a very big picture within kind of the political landscape. Um, so we do need to, and, we, and Manette has a big role to play, and the NFU has a big role to play in making sure that um, the, the statements um, that politicians make um, are followed through and held, and their kind of feet held to the fire, so to speak, to make sure that you know when Therese Coffee stands up um, at NFU conference and says that. Um, she will uh, partake in a, a meeting with the Upland farmers to discuss the future for them, um, that actually meetings such as those do happen. Um, and those statements, for example, I mean, Rishi Sunak, when he was um, in the leadership contest last, back last summer, gosh, a lot's happened since then, um, but he made, he made several kind of promises to the farming industry and we made very good note of those and it's now kind of down to Manette and, and our external affairs team that do a great job of lobbying at Westminster to make sure that, that those promises are, are upheld. Now Minette Bat has also told the conference that she believes the rural vote will be absolutely crucial in the next general election. Uh, would you agree with that, especially since Dorset remains very much a rural, non-industrial county? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the rural vote always has, has been very important, but none more so than now. I think we are uh, the country, um, the, the consumer. Um, everyone is increasingly aware of the importance of food security. Um, we've seen issues um, on our, our supermarket shelves with supply over the last year or so. So I think it's really at the forefront of people's minds. And making sure that kind of the agricultural industry, the farming sector is is heard, is, is looked after to make sure not only that we are producing food and keeping those, those shelves stocked and supplied, but likewise looking after the environment. We know that farmers um, are conservationists, food production and environment, the environment go hand in hand and, and farmers and, and rural voters and rural dwellers are really kind of at the forefront of that. So I think MPs and particularly rural MPs are increasingly aware of that and, and that is their kind of constituency voting base um, that are aware of these rural issues increasingly as well. So I think she's entirely correct when she says that. NFU Dorset County Advisor Gemma Harvey talking about the union's president, Minette Batters. And that's all we have for you in this third episode of the March 2023 BV podcast. Join Terry and me again in April, if you can. So, until then, it's bye-bye from me, Jenny Devitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. 